0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi Siri Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharunik Boschu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Today, I'm talking with Carl Dudman about the cooperative extension system. Carl, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Yes,
1: I'm Carl. I'm a PhD student from the UK. And I'm based at the University of Oxford at the Anthropology Department within the school called the Institute for Science, Innovation and Society. And I've just returned from a full year and a half of ethnographic fieldwork in the US, which is where my research is based.
0: Okay, so tell us, what the heck is the Cooperative Extension System?
1: My research is all about how different Publics negotiate the question of climate change or the narrative of climate change, especially in environments where there is a fraught or a highly politicized public discourse about that subject, such as North Carolina, which is why I was doing my research. What I found when I went to North Carolina was a system that is in place all across the US, which I'd never heard of. And I only discovered it because I was hosted uh, during my research by the North Carolina State Climate Office, which is itself situated in the state university, North Carolina State University. And as I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know, every state in the US has a land-grant university there to furnish the agricultural community with cutting-edge state-of-the-art innovations in science for agriculture. This was really designed to modernize the U.S. agricultural sector. But what they gradually found was that the kind of scientific knowledge that was being disseminated in those institutions wasn't really reaching beyond the specific the students, basically, the farmers and the kids of farmers who would go to these universities. It wasn't really spreading into the community. And so early on in the 20th century, with another federal act passed, the Smith-Lever Act, it was decided that there should be an additional layer to this outreach program called cooperative extension. Not only would there be land-grant universities in every state, but there would be offices representing those land-grant universities, not in just every state, but every single county of every state so that the workers in that office could effectively be the go between between the university on the one hand and then the community in that county and so that you'd have people in these offices effectively wearing you know two hats one representing the latest scientific innovations and technology and on the other being there to be a communicator and to be um, face-to-face with community members and being able to have a, a kind of particularly strong social relationship in those places. So you end up with this incredible model, which is evident across the entire country of scientific work as a form of public service, which... I had never heard of before, I've not seen in other parts of the world, and as I've begun to research it more over time, I found that many of the systems that have been set up in other parts of the world actually originated from the cooperative extension system itself. I felt like I'd really struck gold with learning of the existence of that system.
0: I like the idea of science as public service because it thinks about the function of the scientific research instead of just like leaving that as its own entity. Yeah.
1: Yeah you know, knowledge travels in this relationship, knowledge about demand and interest and questions and, you know, what it is that people want to know, the farmers, that is, in the communities, travels through the mediation of extension agents to the university, and then something returns back in the form of science, this research, etc. At each end, there is a kind of expectation about what is going on at the other end. And so, when you talk to somebody in the university representing extension and the agent in the community at the county level, they both have very different ideas about what it is that their work and their science is doing and what the nature of service is. Mm. And so when you're talking about what the purpose of extension is, is it to you know educate and modernize and drag people kicking and screaming into the 21st century? Or is it something that with a bit more humility, a form of service where we let people define the terms of engagement. Well, that—that that's the big question, because um, I think it depends where you look, not just within society or the kind of general discourse about extension, but even within the organization itself. How do I use the cooperative extension system? It's another good question. It's maybe even harder to answer. It depends who you are where you are and when you are okay as we've established extension has always been something to be used it's been there to connect members of the public or specifically agricultural or industrial sectors to scientific services but the remit of the organization has actually changed a great deal over time you know right at the start it really was supposed to be this very top-down thing where we're gonna invigorate agriculture and we're gonna bring all of this knowledge to specifically the farmers and people working in other forms of industry and it's going to be science but as time has gone on there has been not only a kind of flexibility because we're talking about every county in the country that's what, like three thousand counties or something, a bit less now. So there's some sort of diffusion, there's a lot of interpretation across different contexts, rural, urban contexts, and different agents interpreting the needs of their community in different ways. So what using extension actually means will have been different in different places. Mm-hmm. But also as time went on there was a kind of creep in the remit of cooperative extension it started to be seen more as a way of solving public problems more and more generally speaking so in times of particular crisis the great depression or the world wars extension would step in to give classes in communities on how to you know save money or be more economical during times of epidemics there was you know a lot of local education on hygiene and the value of inoculations and things which mm-hmm. of course has cyclical reverberations in contemporary times so you know the role of science what it is there to do for you how you can use it has changed and stretched and expanded to the extent that now you know you have other huge social problems which are always imbricated and infused with different scientific rationales and there's always a scientific way of talking about social problems the question of what the remit of extension is and how you can use it has continued to expand so that now in a lot of interviews with extension agents and staff I would often be told that the remit has to Get rid of the kind of old fashioned anachronism of an agricultural focus and say, this is just about science meeting the needs of the general public, whatever that might be, whether that's climate change, whether that's COVID, whether that's like home economics. Even social justice questions, school curricula on race relations, things like this. So it's changed a great deal. And the only kind of really constant thing at the center of all of that has been this idea of science as service. Mm -hmm. But what has changed has been the interpretation of what that means, whether that has to be stuck to the agricultural focus, but how it also infuses with other social issues.
0: I didn't realize that there were extension offices in cities. Can you give me an example of how they've been used in urban contexts?
1: The rural versus urban thing is really interesting for me, especially because my research was very much based in the rural. What I was finding across other Parts of my research was just in general that in rural areas, there is more prevalent sense of a desire for independence from centralized government authority. Rural consciousness has its own sort of aesthetic. And so services tend to be scaled back, basically, in that context. And so, in the places where I was working, especially unincorporated communities, so there wasn't any. Strong local government representation. There wasn't a great deal of interaction with the university or with you know other kinds of institutions either. So, you know, extension was very paired back in that rural context. No talk about climate change, no talk about you know big social issues, much, much more paired back. By contrast, what you get in cities, I want to be careful not to extrapolate too much, but you know, regarding people's relationship with the state or with big institutions, interventions, scientific knowledge in general. But extension is very active in urban areas as well. And some of the services they provide, they're quite striking in how different they are. So in Durham, for example, there are all kinds of ways in which the extension system is offering services to the community there classes for parents, as well as provision of, if I remember correctly, like groceries and diapers and things like that, you know, for low income parents who need a bit of extra support early on in parenthood, there's a strong helping hand for taking care of that particular need. There's also other services to do with youth offenders to establish a sort of rehabilitative service, so that they're not kind of getting dragged into a cycle of problems with the law and you know things like that so there is a level of activity that is quite striking in urban contexts which i have not encountered in much more rural situations partly i'm sure because of infrastructure and capacity and you know how many staff etc but Contrary to that early agricultural, you know, very rural focus, actually nowadays, sometimes some of the places that extension is getting the most involved and interpreting the needs of the community in the most expansive way are
0: actually in the most urban areas. How will the cooperative extension system save the world?
1: <sighs> That's the hardest question yet. <laughs> Okay, well, I can say one kind of bland thing and then one less bland thing. I think the first thing is that it is a fascinating system. And when I compare it to the system of environmental communication, environmental governance, public scientific cooperation and collaboration in, say, my own country... I'm just amazed by the heft of that infrastructure, the fact that there is this direct line of communication from the very, very smallest level of public life to society's centres of elite knowledge production. In terms of any kind of interest in democratising environmental governance knowledge that is a great architecture to start from whatever the history then shows in terms of how that's been done and whether that results in a more profound respect for epistemological diversity or you know leaving that aside just the very fact that a government thought that it was a worthwhile investment to set something like this up is amazing and apart from being fascinating, just like, I think, a great
0: start. It's also great that it still exists, right? Right. Like it's been there for quite a while, and they've shut down a lot of public services in the US in that time period.
1: Right. Somehow it endures. And like I said, the remit has slowly changed, but yeah, it's amazing. So that was supposed to be the bland point, but I actually ended up getting quite excited about it. But the real question that I'm struggling with is thinking more directly about how this saves the world or whether it can. The issue is that I'm finding is that the fact of localising communication between elite science-based academic institutions and members of the public is that there is this kind of work of compromise that ends up taking place where county-level extension agents, realize, okay, this community has its own culture, its own values. This is a relationship of trust that I have with them and my ability to talk to them is based on my credibility as a spokesperson, as someone without an agenda or ulterior motives. And so I have to professionally, but also personally, because I've been based here for 10, 20 years, respect their values and their way of life. And so my way of communicating with them is going to be quite tailored to the way things are socially here. And so I found this quite a lot of the time. And, you know, as I mentioned before, extension does seem to adapt at a very local level to the particular priorities of the community in which it operates. And so one could call this democratization because people are being engaged on their own terms and their life ways are represented in the kind of institutional interactions that they're a part of. But when it comes to something like climate change, then there is this strange kind of trade-off that seems to take place where, in a sense extension has achieved environmental democracy in a way because of everything I just said. But then if the result of that is we're not going to talk about the long term trends of sea level rise in this neighborhood, we're just going to talk about how you can wash off your azaleas or your rhododendrons when there is a storm surge and there's an influx of salt water and we're just going to keep it very sort of technical at at that level we're not going to talk about the sort of larger picture because that's how people prefer to talk about it here so it then appears that there's this kind of weird trade-off between achieving democracy and achieving climate action because a lot of the extension agents in universities and indeed in this kind of national network are all about we need to bring climate into the conversation. You know, it doesn't matter if people want to talk about it or not. My interpretation of science as public service is using the insights that science has given me, namely climate catastrophe, and making sure that people know about it. So you have these two interpretations of science as public service you have these two pathways that those lead down one towards respect for local ways of knowing democratizing scientific advice democratizing local environmental governance and then one which is we're going to do something about climate change and decarbonize society so It depends what kind of world you're looking to save, I suppose. (laughs) That's the kind of question that you first have to ask before you can think about which of those approaches extension can take. Both parties have a world that they want to save, but it seems sometimes that the process of doing so is not necessarily mutually compatible somehow.
0: That it's not the same world.
1: It's not the same world, necessarily. Yeah. That's not too depressing.
0: Well, and we don't have any answers here at High Theory. We just have questions. (laughs) SDS never gives you answers, only questions.
1: But useful questions, interesting questions. Questions that hopefully take you step by step to a slightly fairer world. (laughs)
0: well i wish you great luck in trying to ask interesting questions and thank you for coming and speaking with us my great pleasure thank you very much for having me and thank you for listening to high theory if you like our
1: podcast please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix
0: sharnik bosu and nathan kim manage our social media presence
1: julia irion martins edits our transcripts and owen quinn composes our theme music
0: You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.